Here we are. We've just done another show. We put this together for the listeners out there who can't tune in live or miss the show. Um, when it's up on the 3CR Wednesday breakfast page, you can listen back for a week. This is the podcast. You're in the studio with Judith, Paddy, and Tim. Hey, Tim. So it's a special week here when Tim comes in. It's a monthly segment. Um, and on today's show, we had Bo Spearman come in and speak to us about the Stolen Wealth Games and the protest movement that's been going on for some time up there. Yeah, up there on the Gold Coast, it was great to hear from him. Mm, 100, like, 100 people there already Yes, uh, protesting for the whole... Uh, Commonwealth Games. And all mm. from all over Australia. Yeah, yeah, really impressive. Yeah, so big news and big scenes coming out of there, everyone coming together. And then we had Tim Jones talking about white cheeses. White Jesus, uh, not cheeses. Uh, yeah, talk, I talked about uh, like a range of news uh, around Easter, um, about distortions of viewing the Middle East if we have a white view of Jesus, uh, and particularly the, the massacre basically on Friday uh, of people in the um, Palestinians protesting uh and peaceful, peaceful protests Restrictions too. In, in Gaza, 17 people murdered and 1,500 injured. Yes. Mm. And that's a sad story and it needs much more attention than it's been getting here. And then we spoke with Jamie Gardner, and uh, he's from Liberty, Victoria. And we had run that interview before, but we're getting now some of the reports on um, the submissions to the Inquiry into Religious Freedom. So wanted to hear again what Jamie said about the origins of that inquiry. So that was great mm. to hear his views. It was good to put that in context as we see it across the media again. He speaks so well. Yes, indeed. Mm. And, and, and I guess you know, the strength of that legal perspective as well is coming through there. Mm. We also had Kate coming in. She's an organiser. Um, up in El Dorado of Off the Grid Living Festival, just a little snippet of there of a little tantalising taste that if you want to get up there in about three weeks' time, it's three hours' drive from Melbourne, uh, learn a few skills about how to be self-sustaining and yeah. reduce your footprint. It sounded like a great, uh, great festival, almost festival, a great day. And like then we had that up. conference that was forever giving. Forever giving, and we've still got one more interview from that wonderful conference on new geographies and global inequalities. So we spoke to Vanessa Lamb, Dr. Vanessa Lamb, who's got a project in the Karen area of Myanmar, um, water management. So you can yeah tune in and listen to what she had to say. And before that, we spoke, also, who also was at the conference, to Professor Tony Babington. And he was talking about the need for new narratives about you know development and growth. Why does it always have to be in extracting minerals from the ground and taking indigenous lands to actually do that? And also, um, he uh, told us about Global Witness, which is an organization that documents deaths of environmental defenders and has been doing that since 2002. So, yeah, tune in, mm -hmm. hear more. Tune in, Pack Show. And if you hear any snippets of tunes throughout this podcast, we, due to our licensing here, broadcasting license, we can't play any of the music. We just play little tantalizing tastes. Yes. So we recommend tuning in live. The program does run every Wednesday from 7 till 8.30. AM on your AM dial or stream live digitally. Yeah, and you can listen back for a week to everything, including the music, and then the podcast is there forever. Mm. So thanks for your ears and thanks for your time. We'll be back next week. We acknowledge that we meet and work on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We respect the, we pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples.
in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We acknowledge the sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Hello and good morning and welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. You're here with Judith and Patty. We're going to go back now. Remember last week we had some stories from the new Geographies and Global Inequalities Conference and we spoke to Professor Anthony Babington and uh, he talked about the impact of climate mining on climate change and water and what's happening with all of that around the world, like particularly in Brazil, Latin America, Indonesia, the burning of the palm oil. And uh, towards the end of that interview, he began to talk about the need for new narratives, new kinds of stories about success, not just, you know, the hauling up of mm. coal out of the ground. And uh, he, and also role for writers and artists and journalists. So we're in the same cafe in South Melbourne, and some of the background sounds that you'll hear, the lovely sounds of coffee being made and the clink of cutlery. And he explained all of this to me. The ideas that dominate how we think about this really have an influence on how people, what, what people allow to happen, what people vote for, what people don't hold. So narratives that prioritize growth over trying to recover some balance, for want of a far better term, in the relationship between society, economy and environment. I do believe very strongly that there is a critical role to be played in challenging those narratives but also building different narratives now how those different narratives will emerge who knows i mean in some cases they'll emerge because there will be environmental crisis after environmental crisis after environmental crisis and that will trigger new narratives new ideas for how things should be possibly too late but that that will be one thing that triggers new narratives but also the sustained work and this is back to the importance of media and writers and social movements pushing different forms of public debate is also critically important. And that's a long, that, I mean, it can't be that long because the, the challenges are too urgent, but that's a long haul challenge. Over the last few years, I've been influenced or impacted by the reports of Global Witness that document year on year killing of environmental defenders, the people who've been murdered defending the environment worldwide. And that shows a steady track upwards. This last year, there was a slight reduction of just a few killings. Community leaders, workers working in ministries of environment or you know, working in protected areas, park guards, things like that. It's almost certainly the case that many other people are killed than the ones that they document, but they document certain sort of environmental trends where there's clear documented evidence that they're killed. And it's mostly in, in relationship to large-scale investments in logging and oil palm and mining and hydrocarbons. In, the, in those reports, Latin America is where the most killings happen. Brazil is the country where the most killings happen. But the mo the, proportionally, the most dangerous countries by their statistics to be an environmental defender are Nicaragua and Honduras. Because lots of those killings happen off camera. They happen in remote rural areas. And those killings are right at the sharp end of inequality. And the people getting killed tend to be poorer tend to have certain positions and stand for certain interests and not others. Those are not forms of inequality that our classic measures of inequality pick up on, but they're very real. The bulk of those killings remain invisible. Stuff circulates among certain environmental activist organizations and so forth. So one of the important contributions of those global witness reports is to make 
them more visible. So I think it was last year, Global Witness and The Guardian agreed, or they have a partnership in which The Guardian agrees to run a story on every killing, trying to render a very particular form of inequality that's long been invisible, much more visible. And in rendering it much more visible, subject to public debate. And that strikes me as really vital. Some of the people getting killed in these instances are themselves journalists. They're not international journalists. They're the journalists working for community radio, community papers or local papers who are trying to follow a particular story about deforestation, about illegal logging, about attacks on indigenous people, whatever it may be. Um, or in other instances, which is a variant of a similar, similar phenomenon, they're trying to follow stories on the narco economy in uh, narco politics in Latin America, particularly Mexico, but elsewhere also. I think that's what makes The Guardian taking this up. And The New York Times, they're safer, and they provide some cover for other people working on those cases. Make it harder, once the story's out there, for people, including local journalists, to be killed than was the case before those stories ran on the front page of the Times or on the Guardian. And that was Professor Tony Babington from the University of Melbourne talking about the role of media both in creating new narratives but also in reporting on the deaths of environmental defenders. Mm. And um, I looked up... Um, the the uh, the reports of the report of Global Witness for 2017, and it was 197 people that were killed last year, and uh, that's a fourfold increase since 2002 when they were um, collecting the records, publishing the records, and that comes out to about four environmental defenders a week killed in 2017. So even though that it's, it's leveled out, as he said, but uh, it's still, and this is around the world, so something for us you know, mm. here on 3CR to also pay attention to, and I'm sure some of the environmental programs are looking at that, but uh, to keep mm. it in the news. You're tuned to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. That was Sass Hound and a bit of words coming out of Sass Hound with that tune to accompany it. Get up is about survival. Them tall fellas that life throws at you. Growth and how you deal with the cards you were dealt with, as they say. Solidarity and inner strength to all the brothers and sisters. Yeah, great. And I hope you were lucky yeah. enough to catch that. There was a bit of live music happening in Melbourne last night, Sass Hound, and along with Michael Hurley. Yeah. It's all happening yeah, here it's, in the it's, big end. It is. It's great, actually. There's just so many options. I remember um, I was at one concert just a couple of weeks ago and someone called me and said, um, is, there a, is there a festival on in Melbourne? And I said, no, it's just Melbourne. What a great spot. So we're coming back again now to the conference on global new geographies and global inequalities. The other person I spoke to at the conference was Dr. Vanessa Lamb, and she's from the School of Geography in the University of Melbourne. We've got to follow following geography more now. So interesting. After that line of intrigue from you to figure out what um, human geography was about. That's right. <laughs> we, we all know now. We're, we're just, uh, yeah. Becoming experts is great. And totally it's really informed. Good to hear. Totally informed, yeah. So um, 
Dr. Lamb has she did her um, PhD dissertation on the politics of ecological knowledge and the development of the Salween River, which is in Myanmar, but it's in the Karen area of Myanmar. So we we've had a few stories on Myanmar around the the Rohingya people, what's happening there. The Karen also has a history of conflict with the government in Myanmar. In fact, we have a in Nil here in Victoria. There's a a group of refugees from from the Karen area. Uh, living and contributing greatly to the economy and to the work there. And if you go through Nil, they have a little shop and, yeah, all kinds of um, yeah, interesting. Anyway, she's in, in that area and very interested in water management and those kinds of things. And she's currently doing research uh, on the Salween River. So I caught up with her during a tea break at the conference and I asked her about her project. The project at the beginning was really just about assessing some baseline water quality and other kind of information, as well as outlining what are the broad range of policies and other kind of legislations around water in this area. One project in Kern State that I think is very interesting is with a group of residents uh, who have been working on community management around a lake that's quite near to the river, but it, it's within the basin in Karin State, not too far from the city of Pa'an. But at the beginning, our frame of reference was to look at water governance of the river. But the community members said, actually, what's more important is the lake. And our fishing livelihoods are more linked to the lake and its management, and we're worried that if the river changes and its flood regime changes because of large-scale dam or road construction, that our lake will be gone. So we actually changed the project to then look at community management around the lake, and they've actually presented their work now as a community management strategy to continue that as a either a community management strategy or maybe even a co-management strategy for that lake area in Karin State. And who did they present it to? So in Myanmar, there are multiple layers of government involved in natural resource management. This includes federal government or union government, as it's known, also subnational or regional government, um, and then there is district and township government. So at the same time in Karin State, there's mixed authority governance where sometimes you have armed ethnic groups that also claim authority to different resources. So within this context, there was a whole range of different governments that need to kind of hear about this work and uh, that is very much ongoing. The people who are do, have done the work on the, the lake management, when they do these presentations, what are they asking for from the various levels of government? From what I've seen them do research on, analyze and then present to other groups, they really want to make it clear that there is existing management or, or governance regimes of water resources in this area that need to be taken seriously. Are those regimes their regimes? Yeah. yeah, they're regimes that you know local residents have developed over decades or even generations. You know, if you take a kind of standard development or planning approach, you might think, well, best practice is that we come from the center and we kind of tell people what are the best practices and then you can follow these. But instead, what the community was trying to do was say that actually we've already developed our best practices and we'd like for you to take these seriously. So a lot of work was done in building trust among the community and then being able to present a kind of shared analysis of what that governance actually looks like. The Myanmar government has a 
poor reputation in the Karen area as well as with the Shan people. There's also been conflict with the government. How does this affect what the people want to do for the lake? There's a very practical answer, but then there's a more political answer. So the very practical answer is that as a community, if you want to be taken seriously within emerging levels of government, you want to make sure that what you're presenting in terms of research, let's say, is credible to a whole range of audiences. So there's a practical element to that in the sense that you don't necessarily want to discount certain individuals or government officials being an audience to hear your work. But in a more political way, I can't really speak on behalf of people who live there and it's very, you know, it's not homogenous, right? People have different hopes and visions for the future. But I think in general, there is a feeling that without dealing with this continual insecurity and maybe not necessarily a daily conflict, but a kind of history, and for some people very much daily conflict, without really dealing with those issues, it's really hard to see longer-term visions for trust with government and longer-term visions for community resource management. And so I do think a political message from most of the groups I work with is that a key thing that needs to be developed now is peace. And then being able to really have conversations around what does management of resources look like in that context. It sounds like developing plans for the lake, in a way, is an act of optimism. And I think there's actually a lot of optimism. One of the groups that I mentioned, KSAN, the Korean Environment and Social Action Network, put together quite uh, detailed and quite compelling plans for what they call a Salween Peace Park, which really does envision community management from multiple levels around concepts of peace and nature in a way that's not necessarily this uninhabited, pristine nature, but a very much inhabited nature that we live with every day. And I think initiatives like that are both very compelling and they have a wide base of support within the country. So more optimistic visions for the future doesn't discount what is quite intensive struggle for peace and self-determination in the country has been long going. And it also doesn't discount the fact that there are a lot of varied visions for what this would look like in the future. And that was uh, Dr. Vanessa Lamb from Melbourne University. And before that, um, yeah, she was in, in Canada. You might have recognized the Canadian accent in there. <laughs> and uh, she's talking about water governments in the Kren region, but also the importance of peace uh, in, that, uh, in the world, but also in Myanmar. And as she was speaking at the New Geographies of Global Inequalities and Social Justice Conference just a, a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, again, making time during the break, uh, people were very generous. <laughs> they definitely were. And up next on Wednesday Breakfast, we have Kate Nottingham from Off the Grid Living Festival. The social safety net in Australia is being eroded by government cutbacks to essential services and also bullying tactics, as we've seen recently with the Centrelink robo-debts, for just one example. This is a public service announcement! Over the Wall wants to offer you some simple tools to fight back and defend yourself against a grossly unfair and aggressive system. A system that penalises people already disadvantaged by poverty and significant health conditions. Tune in every Monday at 7.50am on Monday Brecky for Over the Wall. 
3CR is where you are at. Thank you for being here with us. It's Judith and Patty in the studio. And joined with us on the line now, we have Kate Nottingham from Off the Grid Living Festival, the event coordinator, I believe. Welcome, Kate. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Um, could you just start off by telling us a little bit um, about Off the Grid Living Festival and how it's come to be? Yeah, sure. So it's a new festival um, and it came about from all of our other small events that we've been running for the last five years. So we've been doing little camps um, on weekends at farms and people come along um, and do about eight workshops in all different categories from sustainable living through to handcrafts and community living. Um, and over time we've we've met so many amazing teachers and people with amazing skills and so this time we're bringing it all together in, in a festival and displaying all these great things so that it's accessible to the public and everyone can come along and check it out. Mm, beautiful. And where is it? Where is it happening again? So it's in the small town of El Dorado, which is um, between Beechworth and Wangaratta. So it's up in northeast Victoria. Mm, a nice little pocket up there. And having a look through having a look through your website, there is a plethora of activities there, but they're all based around one or two things, and that's sort of how to live sustainably and, I suppose, reduce your impact and footprint. That's, that's right. Yeah, so this, this town is um, a really good example of off-grid living. Um, most people in town live off-grid in, in some form, so we don't have any um, town water. Most people are converting over to solar and doing as much as they can to live sustainably, and a lot of people in El Dorado have built their own homes out of mud, straight off of their property as well. So, oh, yeah, there's really, really beautiful great. examples around. Mm. Oh, and so the community's quite glued together there. It is, yeah. It's a really supportive community. It's wonderful. Oh, beautiful. Is there a little um, community hub where people get together and, and talk or is it just sort of a tea in the backyard or a tea in the... Yeah, know? it's a bit of that, but it's also um, on once a month we have our um, local food share and everyone comes comes along and we all have cups of tea and bring along any extra food that we've got from our gardens and do a bit of swapping. So that's our main get-together each month. And oh. how many people in the community? Um, so there's only 300 in El Dorado and then there's all the little surrounding towns as well before you get to Wangaratta. Mm. How many members in El Dorado are um, showcasing at this this coming festival, Off the Grid uh, Living? Yeah, quite a few. So we've got some, um, some people who live off-grid um, and do their own DIY solar so they're going to come along and show people how to set it up on their own without using big companies um, and doing it more affordably. Then we've got some local ladies doing all their homesteadings and preserves and homemade cordials and soups so everyone can enjoy some of their nice farm food. Sounds so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's going to be a really wholesome, fun family day out, I think. Yeah. That does sound like a very wholesome day. And it's, it is a day festival, so... If people are interested in getting along, how, how does the day work? How is it going to roll out? Yeah, so it's, I, would, I would recommend coming for the whole day. So there's going to be 120 stalls um, and some of them, a lot of them are going to be interactive. So you'll have people to talk to and do things hands-on. Um, then there's a short talk stage as well, so you can hear more from some of the demonstrators. Um, then in the afternoon, some of the stalls will be converted into workshop stations and you can get hands-on with the the demonstrators and, and really learn their craft. Mm. And so El Dorado, there will be a lot of people from El Dorado helping out with this festival, I believe? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the community is getting on board to help out. Mm. And the CFA, how does the CFA work out there? I believe they've s supported the festival and fully backed it. Yeah, that's right. So um, they help out with a lot of events around here. 
Um, Sorry, I just oh, need to ask, uh, as a, a still a newcomer, I don't believe it, what's the CFA? Oh, so that's <laughs> our local fire brigade. Uh, thank you. So yes, is that the, yes. what does CFA actually stand for? Uh, community Fire Authority. Uh, good, thanks. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cu- country, country Fire Authority. Country yeah. Fire Authority. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I'll be it. so much better informed next time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's made up of a lot of the wonderful husbands and, and the sons around um, town. And oh, some of the, the ladies as well have joined up now too, which is great. Um, and they're helping out on the day with car parking, which is a big logistical nightmare for me. So mm-hmm. I've handed it over, over to them. And um, they'll be raising money um, for the local community um, to help out with the fire brigade and everything they need for the year of, from that day. So, yeah, if everyone can bring along a gold coin for them, that would be brilliant. Mm. Um, we're joined by Kate Nottingham here at 3CR Breakfast, and we're talking about Off the Grid Living Festival in case you just joined us. Um, Kate, if people want to get around this and be able to head up there, where's the best place to keep informed and then obviously buy a ticket? It's a ticketed event, isn't it? It is, yeah. So um, best place to go is our website. So that's offgridlivingfestival.com.au and you can buy tickets online um, and I recommend getting them online because they might sell out before the day. But if you just make a last minute decision to come up, you should be able to get a ticket on the gate. Oh, beautiful. And so you do have a pretty snazzy website up and running there. We do, yeah, with lots of information. So um, this week you'll see all the workshops going up there as well so you can have a look at what sort of hands-on skills you can learn and the full exhibitors list will be up there soon as well. And how many tickets are available? How many do you have? Um, so we're selling up to 5,000 and we've sold half already. So Oh, my God. And, yeah, and it's really <laughs> taking off this week as people are starting to make their decisions of what they're going to be doing this month. Oh, mm. terrific. Oh. Yeah, so it's a big day for our little community. <laughs> it's going to be a very big day as the town increases. More than 300. You'll have more than 300 there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're going yeah, to boom. Yeah. 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 Oh, good on you, Kate. That's lovely. And I believe who helped put together this festival just before we let you get back to the key organisation? Yeah, so the, the key organisation is Creative Collectives and that's a, a small group of us who have been running workshops all around Victoria for the last few years. So, yeah, we've got a, a nice little team there. Oh, beautiful. Thanks so much, Kate, for joining us here at 3CR Breakfast. We really appreciate your time and your efforts out at El Dorado. I hope, yeah, thanks, guys. Pleasure. I hope you have a lovely morning and good luck with the festival. I'm sure you'll nail it. Thanks very much. Bye for now. You joined here. With Judith and Patty, we were just speaking with Kate Nottingham, who you just heard her voice. If you want to get down and hear a little bit more about what's happening there, head to offthegridlivingfestival.com.au. Great day, it looks sounds like. Mm. Yeah, terrific. You're tuned into 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Going downtown to see the shoeshine boy Gotta get home before it rains And that was uh, Kucha Edwards with Downtown. And that was from his album, Kucha, Beneath the Surface. What, what a great voice. What a great voice and what a great tune. Such a well-crafted downtown tune. Yeah. shine boy. Yeah. Well, now we're going to have a look at the Religious Freedom Review. And there was an article in The um, Guardian just last week saying that the review, the latest one, of course, there's been other ones, um, have has extended its reporting date for submissions until, oh, no, sorry, its reporting date 
till 18th of May, and I think that's because they've had so many submissions mm. and it was in, inundated. And so this is the submissions again, to just refresh my memory. Oh, sorry, for the Religious Freedom Review mm-hmm. that was set up almost immediately after the vote on marriage equality. Mm-hmm. And um, as a lot of people were concerned about, the replies demonstrate a high degree of coordination by anti-marriage equality forces. And, of course, the, um, the article in The Guardian references in particular Margaret Court and her submission. So, uh, oh, God, earlier in the year it was, we had an interview with Jamie Gardner, who's from Liberty Victoria, and uh, he's one of the vice presidents there, and they made submissions both to this inquiry but also to previous inquiries. And since this is the, the third inquiry into, you know, whether Australian law and quote-unquote adequately, re- re- adequately protects, that's the unquote, <laughs> the human, <laughs> human right to freedom of religion, give us a third time, I, I asked Jamie Gardner, you know, why? Why are we having yet another inquiry? immediate one is a political sop to the extreme right to say stop messing up the process of getting the marriage legislation through the parliament you can have a second bite at the cherry i'll give you a an inquiry chaired by one of the arch right wingers in the liberal party and who as attorney general introduced the howard should be called howard ruddock discriminatory amendment in 2004. The second limb of the origins of this religious freedom inquiry is the American distortion of the First Amendment, talking about religious freedoms as a device, as some American authors have said, for undermining civil rights more generally. That comes to Australia through American evangelism, through the mass churches, and through a non-church but a self-styled Christian lobby, which has been extremely powerful, very media savvy, although clearly they completely misunderstood the Australian electorate in thinking that they were going to defeat public view, which has been there for a long time, that marriage equality was right. Freedom of religion in our tradition, similar to the international, is a freedom of, of equality, equal treatment of religions, no preference for religions no preferences by the state between religions or between religions and non-religions. So secular alternatives to religion, secular ways of being, are included in the freedom of religion on an equal par. All that is the Australian tradition of freedom of religion, and that's the way the Australian Law Reform Commission dealt with it when tasked with examining a whole range of so-called traditional rights and freedoms. Using the term religious freedoms is a trap It's a framing trap, which they have very successfully sold to the media. Is it a kind of 1984-style newspeak? Well, it is actually. Religious freedoms is actually code for religious privilege, of which they want more. They have too much religious privilege, and they want more. Freedom of religion, and the submission says very clearly, is about equality. It's about treating all religions and people without religion on an equal par, about the state in this case the Commonwealth of Australia, not giving preferences to one set of beliefs over another. What are the religious privileges that Liberty Victoria would like to see curtailed? Well, the first one is uh, the privilege not to pay tax. The notion that, inverted commas, that putting it in quotes, advancing religion, 
end of quote, is an inherently charitable purpose. I say that because that's a technical issue in the law. Freedom not to pay taxes is one that should be abolished. A very important one, and the people who instigated this review wanted to go the other way, the freedom to discriminate on various attributes, in some, in some states all attributes apart from race, is um, another one that is a privilege which is absolutely unjustifiable. Freedom to discriminate in employment, in education, in the provision of goods and services, the provision of accommodation. Freedom to discriminate is the one that the American right wing are very keen on, and that was one that was imported under this rubric of religious freedoms. We believe, Liberty believes, I believe, very strongly and have done so for a long time, that the exemptions from the Sex Discrimination Act and from the various state and territory equal opportunity acts, anti-discrimination acts, they're called all different things in different places, those exemptions for uh, religious bodies are completely unprincipled and improper and should be removed. The only exemptions that religious bodies should have are the, the ones that are general, which are bona fide occupational qualifications. So to be a priest or a rabbi or, a, or an imam or a, a pastor, to be one of those, to train for those positions, to be employed in those positions, is inherently one which is part of religious belief that is constitutionally protected. The law cannot interfere with those sorts of things under the Constitution, and it shouldn't, because to do that would interfere with the primary freedom to believe and to implement your belief so long as it doesn't harm others, it harms no one else. And what about the accountability of religious institutions? One of the freedoms that they should not have is freedom from accountability. Freedom from accountability is precisely what allowed the terrible findings of the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sex abuse. They were freed from accountability by custom as well as by law, by law enforcement authorities who, who basically covered up and failed to hold them accountable. That was a freedom that shouldn't have been available. They must be accountable like any other large and powerful organization. There seems to be, to me, a kind of irony where a group that benefits from the notion of religious freedom then seeks to discriminate against other groups demanding the right to take away the freedom of particular groups. There's something very strange in that. One of the things that we are calling for is a full-scale Human Rights Act in which proper international processes for balancing rights and freedoms to making sure that people can enjoy their human rights to the maximum extent that doesn't impinge on other people's human rights and freedoms. That would solve any residual problems about areas where perhaps genuine freedom of religion may perhaps be inadequate. But this is something which these, these same religious bodies that want the freedom to discriminate against other people have fought in the past, precisely because if there's a general human rights act, their ability to lord it over others may well be impaired, as indeed it would be. They have no 
proper claim to lording it over others and they should be equal with other beliefs, religious and non-religious, cannot and must not be able to trample on the human rights and freedoms of people who do not share those beliefs. And that was uh, Jamie Gardner from Liberty Victoria uh, talking about how problematic, really, this latest um, inquiry into religious freedom has been and and where it's come from, what's driving it, and why we need to be very wary and to keep our eye on what's going on. Mm. And if you'd like to read any of the articles mentioned, the latest one in The Guardian, or to listen back to the audio, head to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Dressing in camouflage doesn't mean that you're a tree. A human in the wilderness is a scary thing to be. You dressing in camouflage or me dressing in jeans doesn't mean, doesn't mean that we are trees. You dressing tuned into Wednesday Breakfast. 3CR Radio is where you are dialed into, either digitally or <laughs> AM, um, or listening back on one of the many platforms. Just before that, we were listening to Two Steps on the Water, Camouflage, one of their latest tunes off their album. Yes. But right now, we're pretty excited. We've got Dr. Tim Jones in the studio. Yeah, ready. cultural historian from La Trobe University. Uh, that was my attempt at trying to get Indiana Jones theme music <laughs> to run across. We still had a bit of two steps on the water. <laughs> Might be able to take a subtle hint. We could do a different theme song later on. <laughs> we could indeed. Hey, Tim, welcome. And uh, Thank you. thanks for getting the, getting the tram this morning. That's my pleasure. Uh, yeah, coming um, in. Good I to see you. I did have a disturbing thought on the tram, actually. Oh, dear. What was that? Well, my thoughts... I've got a bit of a scattergun comment uh, about politics, religion, and the news and history today, and I thought this might sound a bit like Andrew Bolt. Okay, go. Oh, might, just, <laughs> might just be a Boltian rant. Like, oh. No, a, a Boltian rant by, by Tim Jones. But somehow you it sounds it okay. <laughs> so um, I was thinking about what to say, and Judith uh, said, "Oh, there's some of the reports from the, some of the submissions to the Religious Freedom Commission have been published." And I had a look, um, oh, and they just uh, gave me the irrits. Um, <laughs> <laughs> creepy they are we just actually we talked about it briefly you, you talked about them briefly just briefly though, so the yeah. one one thing stood out particularly uh the there was a whole set like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of roach responses copied this from, from conservatives against marriage equality and they were saying um an uh, a muslim printer shouldn't have to be for shouldn't be forced to print the torah just like a christian baker shouldn't have to bake a cake for a gay wedding. And I'm like, well, there are many category errors here and huge historical confusions. Like, you know, baking a cake isn't a religious act, full stop. Um, 
refusing to sell a cake to someone on the basis of the sex of their partner is sexual discrimination. That should be really, really clear in the law, but let's just put that to one side. Um, Muslims and Jews don't have a problem printing things for each other. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm absolutely certain <laughs> that's the case. I'm not, I mean, I'm not an expert in Sharia law or the Torah, um, but uh, religious history shows us that actually Sharia law and Jewish law are structured around, um, you know, engaging in commerce with people who have different religious beliefs. <laughs> That's the whole basis of both of their economic systems in their law. So I'm like, oh, pretty sure Jewish bakers wouldn't have a problem making Muslim cakes or printing the Quran. Well, no, no, just, I mean, what is a Muslim cake, actually? Oh, there's delicious Muslim cakes. Are there? Okay. Oh, that's, another whole <laughs> that's a whole story. other story. Okay, hold on. I'm just curious. But okay. who, wrote, who wrote this letter? Was it a? Was it coming from one source? Oh, that was I don't know where over? it came yeah, from, okay. but I presume um, some of the anti-marriage equality lobby groups set out some form letters and encouraged people to structure their responses around mm-hmm. some of these key talking points. Because it sounds... Sensible. Uh, you know what? I think that one may have come, and I don't, I don't want to be say this absolute in absolute terms, but I think it might have been from Margaret Court's submission. I have a well, uh, she was part of it. She, her, her submission was uh, unique and special in its own way. Um, but there were there were like about eight hundred letters, right. uh, which all which all contained that phrase. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh no! Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, so they, yes. they were obviously very mm. good at getting people to submit. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. nonsensical um, mm-hmm. thoughts. Yeah, follow the script, keep going. Yeah, exactly. So that was one thing, and I, and I, I didn't want to really talk about marriage equality and religious freedom too much because I've talked about that a lot. Uh, then there was an amazing article, a really beautiful article in The Conversation by Robin Whittaker um, talking about how Jesus wasn't white, which is like ah, yes, a I bit saw that. obvs. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, really. <laughs> but she goes through how growing up in a Christian family, all the representations of Jesus are white. Um, when obviously, you know, he grew up in the Middle East and was a brown-skinned Middle Eastern Jew. Um, but then what I loved about it uh, was how she talked about the implications of not seeing Jesus as a brown-skinned Middle Eastern person. Because it was like, well, if we always see Jesus as white, then that reinforces Western Christian notions of superiority. And we don't see um, brown-skinned people, non-white people, Middle Eastern people uh, in the same category Mm. Uh, as deserving of full human dignity and so on, um, which was just pretty extraordinary. Thinking about how you know, of course, Jesus was born in the Middle East and was probably was brown, but the implications of not seeing him as brown, um, yes. even for secular they're, they're people, huge. like they're are huge. pretty massive. Yes, um, yes, and it struck me like on Good Friday, uh, there was a massive um, protest in Gaza. Thirty thousand people uh, staged a. Gra- uh, the great march of return. They walked, they, and it was a peaceful march. They walked up to the border with Israel um, to protest their lack of right to return to their own homes, which are in uh, Israeli territory and not in the Palestinian territory. So heaps of people were dispossessed through the various stages of um, Israel's uh, settlement and, and various wars over the last 60 years. Um, and uh, the Israeli Defence Forces uh, killed 17 people about 1,500 people were injured, and it's barely been reported. Mm. Like, what do we see at Easter when we're when we're celebrating, remembering, or eating chocolate? But, um, you know, a festival that's ostensibly based around a brown-skinned Middle East person, 17 brown-skinned Middle East people were murdered in a peaceful protest 
you know, in the States, if 17 people, 17 people were shot down, it'd be a massacre and perhaps gun control would get in. No, probably not. That was such um, a disturbing story. Yeah. Absolutely disturbing. And so it just it just struck me, and it reminded me also of uh, my friend, um, Dr. Harry Zanineri, who's at uh, Monash and is moving to the Netherlands soon to um, start a postdoc, is writing a book about this, how uh, Western imaging, religious imaging of the Middle East um, as, uh, you know, the origin of the birthplace of white Jesus um, erases uh, Palestinian modernity and the, the, the people who actually live in the land whilst... In the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, we could talk. We could see Egyptian modernity or Iraqi modernity. These Arab nation states growing, um, setting up, uh, you know, universities, modern political nations, states, etc., etc. Uh, Palestine. Palestine was imaged as a biblical landscape. It didn't have any modern Arabs in it. It just had pre-modern, you know, characters from the Bible in it, um, who don't really exist as modern humans. And I think this this notion of like white Jesus <laughs> um, providing a, a lens through which we don't see brown people as full humans, and the way in which the whole Middle East is actually um, seen through this lens of white Jesus, white Jesus is a myth, um, and I think this is something we need to think about. Yeah, mm. actually, I've read other articles by Robin Whitaker in mm. the conversation. I think she's fabulous. Mm. Very interesting work she's doing. Yeah, mm. no, really, really good. And that yeah. whole white Jesus narrative really rings so true with that Easter, everything that is saturated around Easter. It's one of the longest public holidays consecutively <laughs> across the board in, mm. in the society that we mm. live in now. And then to not hear any news coming from the origin of place is yeah, is quite extraordinary, really. Mm. The media organisations don't pick that up, whether that's by choice, by editorial or by appetite. Yeah, and I, but I think it's this sort of really profound way in which, I mean, this isn't a, this isn't a, a breathtaking new insight. Um, Edward Said uh, wrote about Orientalism, um, saying that you know the way in which we view the East is through a fantasy of um, of the East that, from art and from culture, which That's right, is about yes. projecting our ideas about what the East is, uh, what the Middle East is particularly, um, rather than who actually lives there and yes. the practices that actually go on. Um, and lots of post-colonial theorists uh, have talked about the way in which European um, views of the world sort of distort global politics. And that, and one of the you know the big uh, aims in scholarship and politics and media should be to provincialise Europe, you know, put Europe you know, back mm. in its sort of place a little bit and let other people speak for themselves. But it's just I just found it so poignant this weekend, particularly. Yes, um, I, I just, know, so I, a, I really, I couldn't believe, I mean, the arrogance of it and the the feeling that, yes, we can do this and we can do it without reprisal. Mm-hmm. You know, what on earth was the Israeli Defence Force thinking? But in a sense, they have gotten away with it. Mm-hmm. And so did you find any good reporting when you were out there at all, if you wanted to point people who haven't come across anything? Um, well... Some, there's some good Middle Eastern news sources. Al Jazeera. Uh, Al Jazeera is very interesting. Mm. Um, the Middle East Monitor, I read this morning, mm-hmm. um, talking about the Arab League's responses to it, um, which describes, and it's, it's remarkably um, even-handed in its description of the events. It's not uh, giving, you know, not demonising particular people or whatever, but it's just sort of saying these number of people were killed at a, you know, mm. 
And, and there has been criticism in within Israel itself. I mean, there are people in Israel who do not approve mm. of what's going on. So I'm sure, I mean, I'm, I can't point you to it, I'm sorry, Paddy, but I'm sure I've read at least one account mm. where uh, Israeli people are saying this is not mm. okay, this is wrong, mm-hmm. yeah. You are tuned in to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We're speaking with Dr. Tim Jones. He's giving us his monthly insight or has given us his monthly insight. Um, we thank you very much for that, Tim. Oh, my pleasure. That's very good and very insightful as always. Up next on Wednesday Breakfast, we have a little live broadcast from the Stolen Games um, where some of the 3CR constituents are situated up there. Um, stay tuned for that. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixed Down. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Right here on 3CR. This song here is, uh, it's on the album. It'll be coming out pretty soon. On the wrong side of the road. Hope you like it. That was uh, no fixed address with their classic We Have Survived, and that was recorded live at the Prince of Wales in 1981. And joining us now, um, live from up near the Stolen Games protest, is Bo Spearman. Thanks for joining us, Bo. How are you going this morning? Yeah, good. Yeah, good, good. Good morning, I'm done. Ah, thanks. I hear you found a quiet corner. Gav just told us that it's been quite noisy and quite busy up there. Yeah, we actually had a big storm come through this morning about 5.30, 4 o'clock, 4.30, 5 o'clock. Oh, really? Like, yeah, yeah, so um, woke everybody up. Yeah, I was going to say, you've been up a while then. <laughs> yeah, you've yeah, been up a while, and they run around helping so get can... the tents back over and, you know, sort of, you know, a dr- a dryer so we can dry some clothes. Mm. Um, but, you know, like, yeah, the uh, the bus from Maribyrna got in last night, the Obviously, the, you know, the, the, the bus from Melbourne that went through Redfern got in uh, the other night as well, and you know, we're getting ready, the bus from Moribinders getting ready to come down and just waiting to get back from his mob from Sherberg. The bus from Yarrabah got down the other night, last night as well, so... Wow, that's a great. representation of different mob, mob flying in from, um, from Kalgoorlie in Western Australia and um, Perth. Uh, mob from Alice flew in, some more mob from um, uh, Adelaide coming in. Um, yes, a bit of a good representation of a different mob mm. around the country, and also you know the specific issues that mob talk about on you know, on the front line as well. Um, you know whether it's um, you know obviously with you know, going on, going on over in Dudway and, and and South Australia the big fights against the uranium dumps, and oh, yes. <clears throat> we've got some mob from Amphi here, got the grandmothers against removal that are here. Um, and there's obviously war mob here, you know. Um, some of the crew from from, from Sydney are here. Um, yeah, it's a good representation of different mobs and different issues, and you know what what, what better way to have everybody here, you know, than um, 
you know, fighting against, you know, the, uh, I guess that one cause that, you know, um, started it all, the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. But now, yeah, good day to start, actually, the sun just, you know, it's poking us out here right now, so, you know, it's, uh, it's quite a good morning now. I can mm. feel that. Mm. Yeah. That's quite yeah. a, that's yeah, a yeah. big get-together, Bo. A lot of people pulling together there yeah. from around the area. Is, yeah. mm. Mm. Important as well, you know? Mm. Keep the mob and the representation and all those other fellows. It's good to hear it all coming together and the buses and flights all connecting and everyone being in one space. Can you tell us a little bit about how the, um, how the protest started and a little bit of a background on that? Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, I guess you know, I can't you can't talk about the Commonwealth Games protest without talking about obviously 2006 down there in in, in Nam in Melbourne with the Black GST you know working community that set up in King's Domain. You know, and that was sort of you know uh, under the you know, the thumb of um, you know, John Howard you know, back in the early 2000s, uh, the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, under the you know, racist reign of him, you know, the watering down of you know, lots of rights and, and stuff and sort of our mobs. But then also, you know, the, uh, the deadly mob like Uncle Robbie Thorpe and Honey Marge and, and Foley and Claire Land and all these mobs that started that collective down there to sort of, you know, um, get that voice back on a national scale and write different mobs. I remember actually um, I was 15 and my... No, sorry, I was 14 and my older brother, he was 17. Um, him and my dad, they went down there to, uh, to Melbourne to protest the Commonwealth Games down there. In the biggest crew from Brisbane, yeah. So, like, I actually, yeah, remember very, very vividly and clearly. You know, my older brother and my dad getting ready to, to travel. And I remember asking them, but they said, "No, nah, no, nah, you can't come down yet. You know, save it. You know, for another time." <clears throat> you know, then you fast forward, you know, 2018, and you know, setting up camp here and in, in, in Brisbane. Uh, sorry, in the Gold Coast. But then also, you know, like um, our mob have made it a, a tradition to protest the Commonwealth Games. And you look back at 1982 in Brisbane. Brisbane was the last state and territory to have the Aborigines and Torres Strait Protection Act in, which saw all rights governed by the um, state of Queensland you know, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander on missions and reserves. You know, we saw this um, you know, overarching hand you know, under the, the reign of Bjorn um, uh, Peterson, you know, this really right-wing you know, premier of Queensland. You know, when you talk about fascism... Yeah, I was thinking 82. His name... Sorry, I was I was thinking nineteen eighty two would have been Joe Bielke Peterson who had such a, a yeah no it was it was yeah, yeah reputation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, that, and that was a pivotal moment. You know, not just for Queensland mob, but for black holes around the country. You know, because you know, ten years prior to that, ten embassy got set up in Canberra. You know, and um, you know, the, like the, the whole land rights movement you know, was you know, um, you know, catapulted you know to a to a new level. So you know, um. <clears throat> The mob in Brisbane in, in, in the 80s, you know, thought it was a, you know, um, Australia didn't have the right to celebrate, you know, a game of goodwill and also, um, you know, celebrate, you know, um, their achievements, you know. Um, so the mob decided to set up. For two weeks, you know, these mob got arrested. Um, and, you know, uh, the community radio station in Brisbane, Fortune was had done a really great job in terms of raising the funds to put bail up for a lot of the mob. Um, you know, and that's a reflection of... Um, you know, what we've got to do today and, you know, remember what went down in 2006 in Melbourne and also 82. You know, we're, we're fortunate enough to have some mob here, you know, over the two weeks, you know, that were there in 82, that were there in 2006, you know, to sort of inform a lot of us young fellas, younger fellas that are, you know, at the camp here about, you know, um, 
how this tradition of protest in the Commonwealth Games all begun. And, you know, um, not just reflecting on the issues that we face, I guess, as a generation, but also understanding, you know, this uh, colonial history, you know, that we uh, are entwined with when we you know, talk about the Commonwealth. Mm. Mm. And Bo, just we're slowly running out of time here, but we're going to be running coverage yep. across it at 3CR Radio and be crossing as much as we can up to you to get an image Deadly. back down here. But I was hoping to just mm-hmm. get a little snippet of what are some of the main hopes this year round for the action and for the protest. Yeah, all, actually, the Savo is, is, is their opening, so we're planning on having a night protest uh, this evening, tonight. Um, uh, out in front of the stadium, um, across the road from the stadium, actually. So that's you know what we're aiming up to now, just you know, sorting um, how we're going to deal with that there, getting ready for our um, you know, camp meeting, sort of set the agenda, um, you know, not and not just have the organisers dictate that conversation. We want to make it really broad so everybody has an input and where we can go and what we want to do as well. Mm. That sounds great. And it's going to be running across the board, more people getting up there. Um, just to get a sense more of it, how many, up there. Yeah, how many people are there now and weathered the storm last night? I think it's, I think it's close to about 100 at the moment, can't be. Oh, um, yeah, you know, so it's only going to get bigger. You know, we are here for, you know, 10 days, so, you know, yeah, it is going to get you know, much bigger. It's a good reason to get together. Thanks so much for joining us, Bo, this morning. Appreciate you finding that quiet, no. quiet nook. Yeah, we could hear you really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, yeah. No, I was in one of the. I was in the kitchen there, and like this wind was just you know throwing around the top. So I thought I'll, I'll get out of the out of this area where the top is. But no, big you know big shout out to you, Mob, too. You know, like I remember first time I met all you through CR Mob was um when he's come up for G20 in 2014, and you made camp there the whole you know the whole eight six, eight days with us and, you know, like, you've led that, you know, conversation in terms of getting, you know, the message out, you know, for our mom. So, you know, like, we don't, we don't, we don't forget that there. And whenever I'm in Melbourne, I always come around and, you know, poke my head into 3CR and, you know, always say, you know, big thank you for that there. Well, we say thank you to you both for doing some great work and taking the time to chat to us. That's all good. And, yeah, like, um, give us a call any, any time, you know, over the two weeks or any time. Yeah, throughout the day as well when you want to hear what's going on with these protests as well and how we're going. Oh, for sure. Thank you. We definitely will take you up on that offer. Um, certainly, certainly. Thanks up there and hopefully you mob up down that way. Have a good day. Beautiful. You too. Best of luck. You're tuned in to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We've had a packed show, a great show. We were just speaking to Bob Spearman there, one of the organisers for the stolen... Bo Spearman there, one of the organisers from the Stolen Wealth Games protest. Stay tuned to 3CR Broadcast. We'll be bringing you more from there and a great offer from Bo there to call in. And uh, we've heard from... Tim Jones. Tim, you're still here. I'm still here. Yeah, talking about uh, what happened in Israel and at the border with Israel and Palestine yep. over East and the need for uh, more reporting about that. And also um, um, both Tim and Jamie Gardner talking about the um, new inquiry into religious freedom and some of the submissions that have been released recently. Mm, we had a little snippet from Off the Grid Living Festival there from Kate 
Um, it was good to get a listen in there for people into sustainable living. It's a good chance to get up to El Dorado and hear a little bit about how the community's been working up there. Yeah, that sounds like a great project. And then we uh, spoke to Vanessa Lamb, who's doing research in Myanmar and the Karen area on water management and some of the issues there. And Professor Tony Babington about the need for new narratives for development and also attention to to the environmental defenders who are being killed around the country. And he talked about, um, you know, uh, global witness. So we, we're going to have a look at that too. Mm. So stay tuned. We'll be back next week. Up next is Stick Together. You've been listening to Wednesday Breakfast. 3CR Radio is where you are at.